Welcome to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Skin care and plastic surgery are hot topics these days. Let Dr. Rubenstein answer your questions and explain what you'll want to look for in aesthetic products and cosmetic procedures. Get ready for a discussion about all things aesthetic. Now, live from Miami, Florida, American Board Certified Plastic Surgeon, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Welcome to New Reflections. This week, the eyes have it. Uh, See better and look better. That's the name of the show. And we'll be talking about both aesthetic surgery of the eyes and corrective surgery of the eyes. Uh, The eyes are the windows to the soul, right? So we all should be taking care of them. Of course, those windows get a little tarnished as the years go by and sometimes need a little cleaning up and sometimes need a little fixing up. And we're going to talk today about different ways to help you see better and look better. Joining us today on the show are Dr. Andrew Castor. He's a board-certified ophthalmologist and a, a specialist in LASIK surgery. We're going to talk all about the mysterious world of LASIK surgery. How does it work? What does it do? Why are so many people rushing out to get it done? And, and how are the results? What's, what's the latest and greatest in LASIK surgery? And Dr. Castor is an absolute expert in that subject, in fact, one of the most popular surgeons in the country and certainly in Los Angeles where he practices. Also joining us is Dr. Lorne Rosenfield, who is a board-certified plastic surgeon, and we'll talk about some of the aesthetic procedures of the eyes and uh, also some corrective surgery of the eyes that may go along with aesthetic surgery. So it's all about the eyes today. You know, the idea of operating on the eyes is not a new one. In fact, ancient Egyptians have some writings that talk about surgery of the eyes, and uh, it's, it's, it dates back quite a long ways. They had surgery where they were removing certain uh, things from the eyes, growths and whatnot, very similar to what we do today for cancer. Uh, in fact, that was really the origin of eyelid surgery, and, and they also, the Egyptians were very crafty. They took skin from different places and used it, to help reconstruct other places. And one of the places they would take it would be sometimes the forehead and the eyes. So they were the ones that first started doing this. I can tell you it's grown quite a bit since then. Eyelid surgery is one of the most popular cosmetic procedures year in and year out. And that's notwithstanding the thousands and thousands of LASIK procedures that get done every year. There's about 200,000 blepharoplasty procedures performed in the United States last year. And it it is just consistently the number one rejuvenating procedure of the eyes. The very first procedure for uh, for the eyelids that is documented is from 1818. Uh, Dr. Von Graff was the first doctor to talk about doing eyelid reconstruction uh, in the modern day and modern age of medicine. And that was for cancer reconstruction. And now in terms of corrective surgery, that's a much more recent thing. Corrective surgery, in 1950, there was a Dr. Barraquer uh, from Colombia who was the first doctor to do any type of corrective surgery on the cornea to help people see better. And Dr. Barraquer had invented certain tools that were used, and he was the first person to be able to try and, and correct corneal shape to help people see better. Now, it, that progressed over 20 or 25 years into the 1970s when a procedure called radial keratotomy was born, and that has grown into what is now called LASIK procedure, Uh, and LASIK stands for the Laser-Assisted Insight-to Keratomyelitis, and uh, that's a big, long word. I guess why they changed it. They just use the acronym LASIK, but everyone knows what LASIK is. Everyone's heard of LASIK. Stars and uh, famous people have flocked to our first guest's office to have this done. One of the most trusted LASIK surgeons in the United States. I'd like to introduce to the show Dr. Andrew Castor, board-certified ophthalmologist and specialist in LASIK surgery. Dr. Castor, welcome to New Reflections. Well, thank you, Dr. Rubenstein. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I appreciate you taking your time and and, uh, giving us a a call so we can chat about LASIK. LASIK surgery is... uh, Probably the, the hottest thing in ophthalmology for the last oh, 20 years, or 15 to 20 years almost. Uh, tell us, wh- how many procedures do you perform a year, in your estimation? I perform between one and 2,000 LASIK procedures each year. And in the United States overall, there are about a million procedures each year. 
Publication. That's unbelievable. A million procedures. And tell what what makes this so popular? Why are, are so many people choosing to have their vision corrected this way? Well, the thing about LASIK is that it's extremely easy to undergo from the patient's viewpoint. So it takes about five minutes. There's no pain. You get up and you can see right away. You're back at work the next day. So it's really fast. It's really easy very quick recovery. The main problem with LASIK is that we're working on your eyes, so it's a very scary procedure for people. There's a lot of fear involved. And I yeah, find that the I, thing... Yes? Uh, well, I would imagine, I, I was going to say that, that that is frequently a limiting factor. You know, to me, just as a person, I always express to my patients, kind of freaky when you think about someone messing around with your eyes while you're awake. Even when you're getting eye exams and you have the eyes propped open, it's uh, it's it's a kind of a daunting thing, but it's incredible when you say that there's really no downtime. It sounds like no downtime at all. You're, you're well you, the rest of the day. You take the rest of the day off, but the next day your uh, patients drive into the office to see the doctor for an, for a quick exam, and then they go about their day. They go back to work. They are uh, their mother. They go about taking care of their children, and so there's very very little downtime involved. That's incredible. Now, I was taking a look at your website, and you've got so many accolades. Uh, you know, it seems like you're one of the more experienced surgeons in the United States in this. And did I read that correctly, that you were one of the original uh, experimental surgeons, one of the surgeons that did the first few procedures for the FDA trials? I was one of the 20 doctors who performed the LASIK surgeries that then led to the FDA approval of LASIK is safe and effective. Fantastic. So there really are very few people that have more experience than you. Let's, let's talk about who makes a good candidate. Because, you know, if a million people are having it done, there's, there's a tremendous, you know, opportunity for everyone to have it done. It seems like there are too many bad candidates, but there must be someone who is ideal. What are the sort of things that LASIK can improve? So LASIK can improve distance vision in anybody who wears glasses or contact lenses to make their distance vision better. So these are people that have nearsightedness or farsightedness or astigmatism. And most people have, uh, one thing that most people don't understand is almost everybody has astigmatism. So um, anybody that's wearing glasses or contact lenses LASIK can correct their distance vision in order to make them see better. Now, in people over 45 years old that need to wear close-up glasses, LASIK can often correct their close-up vision as well. So they'll be able to see far away and near in a technique that we call monovision, which is where we correct one eye for distance and one eye for near. And now, is that something where if you're having difficulty, you have to preferentially look through one eye to, to get the best vision, or does your brain just reconcile everything by itself? The brain will reconcile the two eyes together. So I, I, I describe to patients like there are two video cameras running all the time, and they're, they're sending their messages to your brain, and your brain has a dial, and it will dial into whichever is giving the sharper vision. Oh, incredible. So that, that really is pretty neat. And the process is no different for people having that type of procedure then, uh, whether you're correcting uh, nearsightedness or farsightedness and improving their near or far vision. It, it doesn't make the operation any more difficult, does it? No, it's actually the exact same procedure, regardless of which of those three things, nearsightedness, farsightedness, or astigmatism that we're correcting. We just put different numbers we punch different numbers into the computer to remove a slightly different pattern on the eye. But from the patient's viewpoint, it's exactly the same. The procedure takes generally less than one minute per eye to actually do the treatment. So other than what you call distance vision, someone who can see near or see far or have trouble with one or the other, who are the bad candidates? Who are people you can't fix with LASIK? Well, there are a lot of people that we can't fix, and in my office, generally about 30% of the patients we turn away as not being an appropriate candidate. For instance, your eyes need to be stable. They don't want to be changing rapidly for distance. 
this is usually an issue with younger people. So uh, a younger person usually develops nearsightedness in their teenage years, and that nearsightedness can continue to get worse, usually until you're about 18 to sometimes up to 25 years old. So if we were to fix the vision of a person whose eyes are still changing, well, they would continue to change after the LASIK technique, and then we might have to come back and do another treatment later on. So a good guideline then is, I mean, obviously for people who have really bad vision and they want to improve it and they're under this age, they opt to go ahead and have it done. But sounds like a good guideline is uh, having someone be at least 25 years old before they have this done. Well, actually not necessarily because some people's eyes stop changing when they're 18. What we like to see is two years of very minimal change in the vision. So if we have a pair of glasses from the patient from two years before, and now we examine their eyes and we see, well, that these old glasses are basically still good for this patient, then we can say, well, your eyes have stopped changing. They're most likely not going to change anymore. Because once you stop growing, that's when your eyes stop changing. And so that could be anywhere between the ages of 18 and 25, and that, that's that's your general guideline. How do you make that into, that determination? If someone walks in the office and they're really excited to have LASIK, how how when at what point would you say, hey, you know, uh, I think your eyes may still be developing. We ought to wait a little while. How do you figure that out with the patient there? Well, there's two things. I ask them how often do they need to change their glasses or their contact lenses. And some people will say, well, I haven't had them changed in five years. And and we see to our own measurements that they're seeing very well through their glasses and their contact lenses. So we can then conclude that their eyes haven't changed over the past five years. So it's by looking at, at what they're seeing now compared to what their prescription is. And that can tell us whether their eyes are changing or not. Okay, and then once you've determined that their eyes are not changing, uh, are there any other reasons why LASIK might not be a good idea? Oh, yes, yes. There are actually many categories of people who really don't want to have LASIK treatment. And uh, some of those are people that have certain corneal conditions. So there's a condition that we call keratoconus, which occurs in, it's not, it's not very common, but it's not uncommon. It occurs in one out of 2,000 people. We certainly don't want to do any treatment uh, for people with that keratoconus. If a person is has cataracts that are developing and growing, and we know that they're going to need cataract surgery in the next few years, then we probably don't want to do any LASIK treatment on them because the cataract surgery will change the prescription. Uh, people who have excessive dryness of the eyes, that's another category of people that probably want to avoid LASIK treatment. And then people who have very thin corneas, because we're doing this treatment, we're removing some of the corneal tissue. The cornea is the clear part in the front of the eye. This is where we do the LASIK treatment. So if you look at your eye from the side, look at someone else's eyes from the side, you can see that there's a, there's a clear area at the very front of your, of your eye. That's the cornea. That's where we do the treatment, and it has to have a certain amount of thickness in order for us to remove some of the tissue and still have enough left over for safety reasons. So the, the cornea is, is the outermost layer of the hard, you know, the solid part of the eyeball, right? Yes, it is. And, and the thickness of it is going to determine whether or not they're safe. So people that have uh, either too dry a cornea or uh, any chronic inflammation, I'm thinking, would probably not be a good idea. Right. Uh, and, and then the thickness is going to determine whether or not it's safe to remove it. So how much, obviously you're removing, I would assume, microscopic amounts of cornea, but then we were talking about a fairly microscopic structure. Yes. It's, uh, the cornea itself is very thin. It's about 500 microns in thickness. A human hair is about 100 microns in thickness. So we're talking about a tissue that a structure that's about five hairs thick, and usually we're removing around 50 microns, about half of the thickness of the human hair. That's how much we're taking off. It's very, very small. And uh, so, obviously, we talked about the dryness of the eye, the corneal thick, thickness. 
the the dynamic changing of vision not being a good time to do it. Any other big detractors, any other big reasons not to have this done if you're a patient considering LASIK? Well, I think you have to be willing to accept the fact that if you have LASIK, we can't guarantee that you're going to get a perfect result. Um, one of the main problems with LASIK procedures are that we get almost almost everybody gets very close to perfect, but we don't get 100% of the people 100% perfect every time. So we have to bring people back and do what we call touch-ups. And we do touch-ups about 4 to 5% of the time. So one out of every 20 to 25 patients will come back, usually three to six months later, and we'll have a refinement done. Now, most of the people who are going to have these refinements or enhancements, they're not wearing any glasses along the way. So they're, they're living their lives now without glasses, without contact lenses, but the vision isn't as good as it can be. So and is that a situation, now, when you say it's not as good as it can be, is it a situation where there's uh, vision problems in certain areas of their visual field, a little spot here or there, or is not quite as clear or not not quite as focused as it could be? Yeah, no, there wouldn't be spots where the vision's bad. It would just be an overall uh, clarity that's not as perfect as it could be. So it, maybe it's like wearing your last pair of glasses instead of your newest pair of glasses. <laughs> okay. But so, you know, the vision is still functional, very good, probably better than it was when they came to the office, just not ideal in the way that you can make it. That's right. That's right. And of course, we want everybody to see as well as to, to have their maximum potential vision realized. So we want, we want everyone to see as well as they can possibly see. So if that requires a second treatment, a, a touch-up, then that, that's sort of part of the whole program. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short commercial break now. When we come back, we'll continue this discussion about LASIK surgery, and we'll get into what the actual surgery process is like and talk about maybe the future of corrective surgery for the eyes. We're going to take this short commercial break here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. Make sure you do your homework. Why? This is not my car I'm working on. I may settle for an okay job on that, but I won't settle for anything less when it comes to my body. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust. You can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. That's 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard in the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. We're having a fascinating discussion <clears throat> about LASIK surgery, and we're doing it with one of the best in the world. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Castor, who's got tremendous LASIK surgery experience, and we were just talking about the good candidates, the bad candidates. Now let's talk about what surgery is like. You know, Dr. Castor, someone comes in, you, you've seen them, you say, you know, you're a great candidate, here's what we're going to do. Is it your determination 
uh, in your judgment that makes the prescription or the plan for surgery, or is this computer uh, driven? You know, where they get a scan of their eye and then the corrective choices are made by a computer. Who makes that that diagnosis? Well, Dr. Rubenstein, it's actually a combination of the two. So we take various scans of the eye, which gives us certain measurements, which we're going to program into the computer. But then the doctor has to make choices as far as um, what the the final goal of the vision that he wants for that particular patient. And also, uh, typically, the doctor will have his own formulas for adjusting the machine-derived measurements. So it's a combination of machinery and doctor's judgment. And, and that's why it's really important to choose a well-qualified and a well-experienced uh, LASIK surgeon. Well, yes, of course. And uh, we'll get to that in just a minute, but I want to go through the surgery process. So now through the, the surgeon's experience and through the computer analysis, some a plan is made. And you find yourself as a patient sitting in the chair uh, you guys uh, then walk into the room, and to take me through that five-minute episode, what exactly happens? Okay. Well, prior to bringing you into the room, all of these measurements will have been taken, and the uh, computer will have already been programmed with what the treatment is going to be. And you will have been in another room. You'll be, have been getting drops in your eyes and some relaxing medicine. So we give the patient some Xanax, like having a drink or two to relax you, because everybody's a little nervous about this. So then you walk into the laser room and you lie down onto a table. Uh, we then put you underneath the laser machine. The, you uh, look up into the, the machine. Your eyelids are held open by a lid holder. And then the machine is activated by the doctor. It takes about... 10 to 20 seconds of actual laser treatment. After the treatment is over, there are drops that are put in your eye. Then we move over and do the other eye. We usually do both eyes at the same sitting. You, at the end of this, which is about five minutes total time, you sit up, you walk out of the room, you can see. You can't see well enough to drive home because of all the drops and everything that's been put in your eye. Usually, you're uh, a little tired after all of this. We, we want everyone to go home and keep their eyes closed for four hours, so someone will drive you home. You go home, you relax, and then you wake up, and you're ready to go. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, so it is really a pretty fast procedure, about five minutes to get it done. Now, you were talking about choosing a good surgeon. How is the average person out there supposed to know who's good, who's bad? You know, how, how do they make that determination? What's your, your guideline to someone that might be, uh, you know, living in a city where you're not practicing, in New York, in Miami, in Chicago, in, in Kansas City, wherever they might be? How does someone find the right LASIK surgeon? Well, I think it's actually very, very hard for a patient to be able to cut through all of the advertising and all of the promotion and actually pick a doctor that's that's really good at LASIK. If there are doctors who only do LASIK, who are subspecialists in LASIK, that would be a good sign to a patient. But you also want to avoid these these clinics that are run more like companies or more like businesses than they are doctor's offices. So this is a medical procedure. It needs to be treated like a medical procedure the medical aspects need to be primary, not the business marketing aspects. I would avoid the really low-cost providers. They, uh, there are ways to do this procedure with cheaper equipment, using less experienced staff, hurrying patients through the procedure where you can, where you can cut the cost. And you can definitely get good results doing things that way but you're more likely to get a result that you're not going to be happy with if you go to one of these extremely cut-rate places. So I would look for for board-certified doctors who only do LASIK, but where you get a sense that this is a doctor's office and not uh, not, a, not a run-through clinic that's going to be just treating thousands of people 
all. You know, we we have the same problem. We got the same problem in aesthetic surgery as well. You know, there's uh, lots of advertising, a lot of hype, and it's not all genuine. It's not all true. And, uh, you know, it's both... Uh, reassuring and disappointing to me to hear someone in a completely different field, one that's truly purely medically indicated, that is having the same problem. And we, we, on New Reflections in the show, we always talk about making good choices and doing your homework. And that's just, you've just given some great advice. I think, you know, we always talk about board certification. And the certification that we're talking about is the American Board of Ophthalmology. That's the, the legitimate board in the United States that certifies ophthalmologists. And then looking for someone who subspecializes and does really only LASIK surgery day in and day out, that's probably going to be good indications that you've got a, a good choice there. What's the future for LASIK surgery? What's coming up down the line that you think is going to be even bigger and better? Well, one of the, the, the big areas that we, that we don't really have a great solution for right now is people over 45 who are having trouble with their close-up vision. So I mentioned earlier in the show that we have a technique that we call monovision, which lots of people do with their contact lenses, by the way, where they have one eye treated for far and one eye treated for near, and the brain can merge those two images, pick out which one's better. And a lot of people that have monovision, they don't even know which eye is their near eye and their far eye. They come in with their contact lenses and they say, well, I can, I can just see fine. I don't really know which one's my near eye and my far eye. So, but, but what would be fantastic is if we could undo the aging change of the eye and allow people who are older to see far and near with the same eye without needing any glasses. And, and do you think that, do you think that's something that's coming? Are there techniques that are, that are getting some success? There are, there are many techniques that are being worked on. There, uh, there are a couple of techniques that seem to be having success that I'm very encouraged about. There's a technique with, uh, where we implant a little lens into the cornea, into the front of the eye. It's called camera, K-A-M-R-A. It's being, uh, performed in Japan right now. They've done over 10,000 of these and gotten wow. very good results. And I'm hoping that, um, as, as long as those good results continue to be proven that we will have this in the United States in a few years. So that would be, be spectacular. Wonderful. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And I'm sure there's always new technology coming out. Uh, so, you know, it's something to, to keep a, a watch on, but it sounds like the LASIK techniques of today are really very, very good and don't need a lot of improvement to help millions of people, as millions of people are having this done year in and year out. Uh, I want to Thank you very much for coming on the show. If someone lives in the Los Angeles area and is considering LASIK surgery, how do they get a hold of you? Well, I practice in Beverly Hills. My phone number is 310-274-1221. That's 310-274-1221. They can look us up on our website, which is castervision.com. That's C-A-S-T-E-R vision.com. And I'd be happy to, to see any of you. Well, it'd be a very, very good choice as you've got as much or more experience than just about any other LASIK surgeon in the United States. It's been our privilege to have you on the show. I really appreciate you giving us the time. Thanks a lot, Dr. Castor. I hope you continue doing great work. And anyone listening, please, if you're in the Los Angeles area, think about LASIK surgery. You couldn't make a better choice. Thanks again, Dr. Castor. hope you have a great day. Thank you, Dr. Rubenstein. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Our next uh, step in the discussion of eye surgery is going to bring us into the world of aesthetic eye surgery. And remember, we were talking at the top of the show about 200,000 blepharoplasty procedures done annually. Well, I'm going to introduce to our next guest. He's done a, a pretty good number of those procedures and is a recognized expert in the aesthetic surgery of the eye. Well, I can welcome to the show Dr. Lauren Rosenfield. Dr. Rosenfield, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, Dr. Rosenfield is a, a board-certified plastic surgeon, expert in eyelid enhancement surgery and, uh, in fact, some corrective surgery as well. We'll talk about that as we get into this. You know, the eyes are the earliest sign of aging, and year in, year out, 
when you look at the statistics, they're the number one rejuvenating procedure for the face. There are more blepharoplasties done than any other uh, aesthetic surgery for the face. And I think it's because it is one of the earliest signs of aging, and it can help. You know, a little blepharoplasty procedure, which, we'll, yeah, as we'll talk about, is not that hard to go through, uh, it can really refresh someone's look with a fairly uh, easy-to-tolerate process. So a lot of people out there might be thinking about it. What makes someone a good, uh, a good candidate for blepharoplasty? Thank you. I, I think that the key features are that I like to follow a uh, principle that, I've developed over the years that you want the extent of the surgery to match the extent of the problem. That is, people always ask, well, am I ready? Is it time? And I think that obviously that them just coming into the office and asking that question begs it and means that it's time to talk. And the bottom line is, as long as there is, in the surgeon's estimation, enough extra skin on the upper eyelids, for example, where there's hooding that, that obstructs for example, the woman to put on her makeup where she has to pull her brow up to get the skin away uh, or the sense of heaviness. And on the lower eyelids, the bagginess and crepey skin that starts to develop that makes them look tired or people always asking, you know, are you working too hard or not sleeping? When you get to that point, when the surgeon sees those physical deformities, so to speak, then it's reasonable to uh, have uh, a blepharoplasty surgery. Now, that's pretty much when someone starts coming to the office. The co most common comment that I get is, you know, people are starting to say, I just look tired all the time or I look angry and, and I don't feel tired and I don't feel angry. So what can I do about that? And you talk about people that lift their their eyebrows up and then they can see better or they, they pull up a little bit when they come to see. So, you know, here, when I do this, it looks better. Let's talk about the balance between the brow the eyebrow level and the upper eyelids because a lot of times people come in and I've seen them in my office where they're not really great candidates for the eyelid surgery what they really need is a, a, a low heavy brow positioning reposition how do you determine that if you had someone listening at home what could they do to figure that out for themselves well again I, I have a philosophical um, uh, difference in terms of the brow itself which we could spend an entire hour on um, but my premise is that uh, the issue with brows is more a matter that uh, uh, it's one of those anatomic structures that I describe to the patient that's like one's nose. If it moves a little bit to the left or to the right, uh, you're going to know that it's not where it should be. And the problem with the brow is that there are just way too many over-elevated brows in this world. And it's, the, it's one of the absolute first on the list stigmata of having had something done or overdone. So I think one has to be very, very cautious about brow lifts in general because there's very little wiggle room in terms of uh, getting them exactly where you want. As I like to say to patients, it's not like a micrometer where we can adjust it to the millimeter. So with that being said, there clearly is a patient who's got uh, a, a component of their upper eyelid a problem that's uh, attributed to the brow being totic or fallen into their eyelids. And if it's truly significant and, and, and it's obvious that their brows are way too heavy, then I think a brow lift is reasonable. But most of the time, if you really look at it, you're going to notice that the majority of the pathology of the upper eyelid is going to be the upper eyelid skin. And in, 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 this, in, the, in the sense of having conservatism and preventing the possibility of an over-elevated brow, I'll more often just do an upper eyelid skin excision, which accomplishes 80% of the solution. And again, it's a matter of just wanting to accomplish an undone appearance. Sure, sure. I agree with you completely. I mean, we've all seen people that have a surprised look permanently from overdone uh, brows. I think techniques have changed in brow lifts that make that, I think, a little bit less likely if you're using some more modern technique, but still, we still continue to see them. So, in my opinion, I'm also very hesitant to do brow lifts. I'm very picky in who I do them on. I like to take the patient in the mirror, and while they're looking at, them, at themselves, raise up the brow to where I think it corrects the, the problem for them, and say, look, you know, this is what it's going to look like. You know, not only does it correct the, the sagging that the bow might be creating, but it also changes their facial expression. 
and it's going to change it permanently. So I always like to put it in front of a mirror, lift it up to where I think it really ought to be, and say, listen, you know, this is where it's going to be, and I'll offer my opinion. I'll say, look, I don't think it looks good, or I think this is a nice change for you. What do you think? And I let them make the choice, and, you know, something you can do with looking in the mirror at home, just stare at the mirror, take your fingers in the, in the middle of your forehead and lift up gently until you, you see a change you like, and you, you might not. You might lift up a couple millimeters and say, well, it looks kind of freaky. And uh, very often that is the case. It'll make you look surprised. So I, I agree. Mostly when we, people come to the office complaining about being tired, I, I think you're exactly right. There, it's, it's probably more than 80% of the time, more like 90 or 95% of the time, going to be an upper eyelid problem. So what are some of the misconceptions, other than uh, you know the pet peeve about brow surgery, what are some of the misconceptions that you may have heard about with people thinking about eyelid operations? If they come in and clearly they just don't have the right idea, what do you hear in the office when folks come in? Well, I think that uh, that ties in again with the brow. They don't, want, they don't want their appearance to change dramatically. Most patients don't. And the ones that do, we all should be very wary as plastic surgeons, but most of the time, they don't want their expressions to change. They don't want that surprise look. They don't want people to not recognize them, so to speak. Uh, their kids to be shocked as to what did you do, mom? So I think that that misconception is is unfortunately founded in some reality. If you just look at reality TV shows and magazine covers, <laughs> but the fact remains that people like you and me, who are going to be far more uh, discriminating. And, and, and our ability to be, you know, adjust our surgeries to match the problem. And as I like to say to patients, you know, in general surgery, I was trained to learn when to start if there was an emergency appendix or gallbladder, but in plastic surgery, you have to know when to stop. And so <laughs> the issue is you need That's to know terrific. how much to do. And I tell patients, you know, it, you're paying for technical expertise, but what you're really paying for is aesthetic judgment. So, the, so to answer your question, it can be done so that it's invisible. You know, it can be done. As I like to say, you can, just taking away what shouldn't be there and not leaving your footprint, just backing your way out, is exactly what aesthetic surgery should be, and that can be done with blepharoplasties. Well, one of the things that I see in the office is folks will come in and uh, they'll, they'll talk about their eyelids drooping. You know, say, well, my eyelids are too low. And sometimes what they're talking about is the skin that they've got the upper lid skin that's hanging over and that that's either creating either you know could even be cutting off their visual field where they can't see things in the upper outer part of their field so they're starting to block off some of their vision but sometimes what they're really talking about is uh they're talking about uh the the actual position of the upper lid and uh you know, that, that's a condition that, that called eyelid ptosis. If the eyelid gets too low, then that, that's a different matter. That's a structural problem with the eye. Now, can you talk to us a little bit about looking at someone and how do you decide? Is it eyelid ptosis or is it sagging skin? Sure. I mean, the, and the, the primary issue there is exactly what you've stated. And at a minimum, it's important for the surgeon to point this out before surgery because it's a, it's a, physical finding before surgery and it's a complication after if you didn't point it out to them uh that is if you don't treat it what you're speaking of is is it can be clearly shown to the patient in the mirror as you just mentioned you raise the brow you 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 remove the excess skin that could possibly be causing some uh uh heaviness to the eyelid and push it down what's called pseudotosis which means that it's not intrinsically damaged uh, uh, mechanism. It's just the heaviness of the eyelid skin. When you remove that, and if they still have a, a droopy-looking eyelid, that excessively bedroom-looking eyelid, then they've got intrinsic ptosis, or that is, the muscles within the eyelid are weak, and you can and you can entirely repair that at the time. And it can be quite gratifying to to correct what turned out to be primarily a totic problem, and they look brighter, and their eyes are open, and and in, in reverse, if you just take off their extra skin and they still have significant ptosis, they're still going to look tired, and you and you haven't crossed that happy line, as I like to say. <laughs> yeah, the, the happy line—that's a good one. Uh, well, yeah. So there, there is a balance. And do you, you know, there's always a question when you're talking about ptosis repairs. I've done 
I've done them in my career and in, in my practice. I feel comfortable looking at someone and saying, well, you know, here's the situation and it's a different thing and we can do them together sometimes. It, do you feel comfortable doing uh, ptosis repairs? Do you think the average plastic surgeon should be doing them? I think the average plastic surgeon should be, um, but they don't. Luckily, I think that the majority don't because they don't feel comfortable. That's a far better option and circumstance than than doing them and not feeling comfortable, which I think also happens. Um, I think if you you should get further training to be able to do that by spending some time with uh, either a plastic or ophthalmologic uh, colleague, uh, or alternatively refer them uh, as hard as that is to do uh, to get what needs to be done. But I do think it's something that should be in an armamentarium. And normally, what I would be comfortable to do is to do it entirely at the time of any of my eyelid rejuvenation surgery, including the upper eyelid. Um, blepharoplasty, except I explain to all patients that they're very likely, especially if they've got significant extra eyelid skin, uh, that there might be a second stage excision of additional excess skin because, as you can well imagine, when you lift the louvered drape, you're going to end up with uh, extra tissue once again, and it's better to be conservative and then come back easily under local anesthesia and remove a little more skin having raised the drape with your ptosis repair. Yeah, and that's a good point for anyone that has that ptosis. And it's far less common than, than people think. More often than not, when they're saying my eyelids are droopy, they, what they're talking about is the skin, and that's, that's a much simpler correction. But it, when you do the ptosis correction and the upper eyelid aesthetic surgery at the same time, uh, you make a good point. When you correct the positioning of the lid, it's probably going to create a need to remove a little bit more skin than you were originally planning. Uh, and I always, even if we're not doing ptosis repair, I always tell my patients, listen, it, you have to be conservative with this. I'd much rather come back and take a little sliver of skin to make it just perfect than have the problem of having a little sliver of skin taken too much because it's a, very difficult to put stuff back. It's a whole lot easier to just take a little bit more. So being conservative is always wise. Now, uh, let's talk about the choice of technique, and we're looking at the, you know, in the, in the upper lids. I think things have changed. If you look at upper lid surgery, uh, what we used to do as plastic surgeons years ago has changed. I know you, uh, people that might have had the surgery done 15 or 20 years ago probably had more fat removed than most of the people having the procedure done now because our sense of what is aesthetically pleasing has changed, and I think we like having a fuller upper lid look than some of the more hollow looks that from years past. So I think you know that has changed. Uh, what's your view on on the aesthetics of the upper lid? What is what? How have, how has what you do changed over the years? Well, I think in the upper lid, you're exactly correct. I think from the days of old, they used to literally vacuum out all the fat, just evacuate all fat that was present, and that might have looked good for the first few years, but as the patient ages. Uh, you generally are going to lose what's called periorbital fat or the fat around your eye, and then you can get that kind of cadaveric, very hollow um, kind of nursing room uh, resident eye. Not an attractive appearance. It doesn't happen to everybody, but on those that it does, it, it, it's very distracting. So the principle is exactly that. Be more conservative with your fat removal uh, be conservative even with your muscle removal. We do take some muscle at the time of the uh, upper eyelid. It's attached to the extra skin. There's extra muscle. And so you can leave a little bit of that muscle even on, especially in the younger patients where, again, as you just alluded, be conservative, take a little bit less because as much as patients will always say, take all that you need to take, be aggressive, you know, remove everything. Uh, you need to protect them from themselves. And, yeah, and there's no question. There's job. no question. They always want. Yeah, they're always telling you. You know, take everything, take it all out, take as much as you can. So same thing with liposuction, by the way. Correct. <laughs> but yeah, you're yeah. right. You've got to use your judgment and, and let uh, cooler heads prevail, as it were. Uh, the 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 techniques now with less fat being taken and and uh, getting a fuller, more youthful, and probably being a little bit more conservative in everything that we're doing with the eyelids. Uh, let's talk about the methods that are being used. Now, I, we, I think we've maybe gone uh, full circle. Now, eyelid surgery can be done under local anesthesia, with sedation, and even under general anesthesia. Uh, what is your choice 
if you could, if a patient comes in and says, gee, doc, do whatever you want to do, how do you advise your patients about the choice of anesthesia? Generally speaking, um, I'm a firm believer in control of the environment. The more I operate, the more I realize that, that your ability to get better results and safer results is with control. And what that means is I like to tell patients a controlled sedation anesthesia is far safer than an uncontrolled local, meaning the patient's uncomfortable, their pressure goes up, you're trying to chase your tail. So I think in general, I tend to be what might sound more aggressive, but is actually more conservative, is to make sure the patient's comfortable. I know there are people out there that do the surgery under pure local, and I think that you have to be cautious because, as I like to tell residents, if it doesn't look good when you're watching the surgery, meaning the patients are struggling, then you probably should change your technique. So for the upper eyelid, I will make the exception uh, if it's in the appropriate patient that understands the circumstances. You could do an upper eyelid under local easily with maybe a little oral anxiolytic like a Valium. On the lower eyelid, I find that that can be quite more, quite a bit more uh, distracting and disturbing because you have to retract the eyelid. So I generally uh, do not do lower eyelids under uh, uh, local only. And generally, I do both upper and lower in most every patient. And so in the end, it ends up being sedation anesthesia. We give a little medication like somebody might have at a colonoscopy to make them comfortable. It's not a general, just enough to have them forget and have no pain. Yeah, and I agree. In fact, a lot of times uh, when I'm seeing a patient, if they're the nervous type and it looks like they're going to be a little jittery or, or uh, just, you know, if their anxiety level is going to be high with any kind of awareness, I would even recommend that they just go to sleep. A, a quick, you know, it's a short operation. It, it doesn't take very long to do. And so even having general anesthesia for a very short period of time allows me as a surgeon to have the best control uh, with the situation, have them be perfectly comfortable the whole time. So I don't hesitate to recommend general anesthesia to certain patients, but, but I think at least sedation is a very good idea. And I know, again, many of our colleagues do this stuff. They'll do full faceless under local with a maybe a, a Valium, as you said. And, and it can be done. It can be done safely and can get great results. But my feeling and in my practice, it sounds like you're uh, feeling the same way, is to have the patient be the most comfortable they can be. And in my, in my opinion, that really, it starts with sedation. And, and frequently, uh, it might end in general anesthesia if they have a lot of apprehension. Sure. So, you know, I think it's, it's better to have, uh, uh, better to have a, a little bit more control, as you say. We're going to take a short commercial break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to be continuing our discussion about aesthetic surgery of the eyes, and we'll talk about some of the different approaches, some of the different considerations about eyelid surgery, and uh, we'll be right back after this short break here on New Reflections. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. If you need a coronary bypass procedure, you probably want someone you trust and not the biggest bargain in town. You might get more than you bargained for. This is your face and body we're talking about. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust, and you can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation in a multilingual office. That's 305-792-7575. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard and the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness.
You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back. We're discussing eyelid surgery. The show today is The Eyes Have It, and we're talking about aesthetic surgery now. We're talking with an expert in eyelid surgery, Dr. Lauren Rosenfield, who's very well published and recognized for his techniques in eyelid surgery, a board-certified plastic surgeon practicing in California, in Northern California. We were just talking about uh, making choices, making diagnosis, you know, who's a good candidate, who's not a good candidate, and you know, how do we do what we do. Let's talk a little bit more about how we do what we do. Uh, coming back, let's talk about what the patient experience would be like uh, you know, if you decide you look tired, you've got drooping skin, you're coming back, you're coming to the, the plastic surgeon to have something done, and you decide, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and have my, my upper and lower lids refreshed. He, let's talk about what that person's going to go through. So, Dr. Rosenfield, someone shows up the day of surgery and they're there that morning and, you know, they get their IV put in and they're, they're taken into the operating room. Tell us what the experience is like just that day of surgery and we'll talk about recovery. So generally speaking, as we alluded to in the first half of this conversation, uh, they're going to have some form of sedation, which simply means that they're going to be medicated enough to go into what patients know as twilight sleep, where they're not going to remember or feel or, or relate to what's happening, which is generally a comfortable place to be because whenever you're manipulating around the eye, particularly, it can be quite anxiety producing. So they can be assured that within minutes of them coming into the operating room, uh, they're going to be in a very restful state and our work will be conducted in, under those circumstances. And the surgery normally takes somewhere between an hour and a half to two hours at most um, to do the upper and lower eyelids. And during that time, we do our surgery, the stitches are placed. Um, they're going to recover very quickly because the uh, medications we use now are so uh, quickly reversed and uh, within an hour and a half of the surgery ending, they're going to be on their way home in general. Uh, at that point, the most important thing they need to do is just rest uh, and relax, ice their eyes for a couple of days if they want to reduce their, the, the, the uh, amplitude of their swelling and bruising, as I like to put it. The longitude, meaning the length of time, is usually going to be a week to 10 days before you're going to not scare small children at the grocery store, as I like to say. <laughs> but, you know, it takes about that long for the human condition to heal from swelling and bruising. And during that time, they've iced, as I say, for a couple of days. They can be up and around within a couple of days with dark glasses on. As long as they don't lift and strain to increase their blood pressure and increase bruising, as long as they avoid that, they can get around and about. And then four or five days, the stitches come out. And then within a couple of days of that, they're going to have some makeup placed by your esthetician or themselves and uh, even get lymphatic drainage or some form of massage to help reduce the swelling further. And as I say, by 9, 10 days, a little makeup on, they could, go, they could potentially go to lunch with some friends and uh, uh, look reasonable. And I'd say that's the general path. There's not a lot of pain. It's, it's sore and achy, but not terribly uncomfortable. They do maintain some drops and ointments in their eyes for a few days to help support it, but there's really no severe pain. It's like a two or three out of ten. Yeah, um, I would agree. I think it's a much simpler process than people might be fearful of. And, you know, in my practice, we take our stitches out in five to seven days. And, uh, you know, usually i got to say, you know, you're funny with the not scaring small children, but uh, I think... You know, the first couple of days, there's definitely going to be some visible swelling and people aren't going to look their best. But really, we got to be at that five, seven day period when I see folks back in the office, uh, you know, barring them having some some kind of reaction or having extra swelling for one reason or another. Uh, I think, you know, they look pretty good. And when the stitches come out, particularly, you know, in upper lid surgery, when your eyes are open, you can't see the scar at all, even while it's red and healing. So, you know, they're pretty presentable, I'd say, within about a week. And then I agree, you know, you get out to about two weeks or so, maybe a little bit longer than, you know, they're ready for 
uh, public consumption, as I say, or just to be out there, even at parties and social settings. But it's a pretty fast recovery, and I agree. Patients don't take a lot of pain pills. You know, it's kind of nagging, uncomfortable the first few days. And I have a lot of patients say, gee, it was like nothing really happened, you know, a little sore the first day or two, and, and it's been easy. So, you yeah, know, I things think, are... I think oh, particularly in, in uh, uh, the less invasive you are with either upper and lower eyelid, particularly as uh, um, not necessarily um, invading the lower eyelid, as we'll probably speak about, and trying to pinch the skin rather than cutting through all the layers. Any maneuver you can make to reduce your trauma is going to give them a faster recovery. Well, let's, let's talk about that because Dr. Rosenfield is well known in uh, the world of plastic surgery for having published and, and taught and talked about a particular technique called the, the pinch, uh, using a little pinch of skin in the lower lid instead of taking out, you know, cutting through all the layers, getting down into the, the deeper structures and doing your surgery that way. Uh, the technique involves going through the back of the eyelid, what we call the, the conjunctiva, the, the kind of pink mucosal part that's on the back side of the eyelid, making an incision there and, and being able to remove any excess bulging fat or do what you're going to do with the fat. And then for the excess skin, particularly in patients who don't have lots of excess skin, uh, just taking a little pinch out of the skin and not having to go through the muscle of the eyelid, and which sometimes can create uh, issues down the line. Tell us about that. What's been in your experience, and, and what are the advantages of thinking about the pinch? Well, I think that the, the best way for me to put it is, is, is speak as I do to patients about what, what really is um, my philosophy and my technique. And the principle is basically if you had two rooms with a common wall, and you had something in each of the rooms that you wanted to remove, the premise of a pinch blepharoplasty is to go into one room and remove what you need to remove and then go in the other room and, and do the same rather than go through the wall with a sledgehammer because, in my opinion, the problem with the traditional approach is that you are cutting through all the layers, burring your way through the wall, and that wall is a foundation. It's a support. It's, it's neurologically uh, sensitive, meaning that that structure between the inside and outside of the eyelid where you're trying to move skin on the outside and fat on the inside is of critical uh, importance, and, and that's primarily in terms of position of the lower eyelid, to be able to not have that pull down, as I like to put it in all deference, the Barbara Walters eyelid where it looks pulled <laughs> and looks done and operated on, and it's a very subtle but, again, major stigmata of having had a blepharoplasty. Other than aesthetics, of course, you can have functional problems of having dryness and tearing and need for drops chronically because your eye is too open and it feels uh, dry sure. and irritated. So I'm obsessive about maintaining posture of the eyelid, and in order to do that, to get to the point, you go on the inside of the eyelid, as, as Dr. Rubenstein has mentioned, in terms of getting the fat because it's closest to the inside and it's an incision that's invisible. It heals with basically no scar. And on the outside of the eyelid, you pinch the extra skin. And in fact, in all deference, I excise almost all the extra skin that way with the premise being that you need to maintain uh, uh, posture of the eyelid in terms of its uh, re-secure tightening. That is, you've got to tighten that lower eyelid first before you pinch I like to use the analogy that if you have a clothesline, before you put the wet towels on it, you need to tighten the clothesline. Similarly, you need to tighten that lower eyelid with what's called a, a canthopexy, which is a small invisible stitch that is made to the corner of the eye into the, into the uh, uh, orbit so that you support that eyelid and you tighten it, something that you don't even notice I've done, but it tightens it. And then you do your pinch, and you can remove many millimeters of excess skin very safely uh, by doing so, and in and in the end, and so that and so that actually, and that, and that keeps your support looking good, and and the uh, the, the pinch is sort of the same thing we do in the upper lids. Only in this case, you're just taking the skin on the lower lid. It really simplifies the approach to removing the skin on a lower blepharoplasty. Well, there was so much we wanted to talk about, and we're getting down to the end of the show. I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, you know, if people in Northern California, if they'd like to come see a true expert in eyelid surgery, someone with a very gentle and, and conservative approach that achieves great results, how can someone get a hold of you, Dr. Rosenfield? 
Uh, well, they can uh, definitely phone my office uh, at, at 650-692-0467, 650-692-0467, or go to my website and see my results and find my contacts at, at uh, uh, drrosenfield.com, D-R-R-O-S-E-N-F-I-E-L-D.com. Um, I'm in Burlingame, California, which is just south of San Francisco, uh, and I have a full operating room in my office. Uh, and by all means, I, I can't thank you enough for asking me. It's a privilege to be on your show. You've got a great reputation yourself, and I, I thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you so much for coming, and it's really my, my honor to have you on the show, someone so accomplished as yourself, and I appreciate you giving your time on a Saturday to spend time with us and with my audience talking about eyelid surgery. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, we've got some great topics coming up. Make sure you keep tuning in. We're going to be talking about revision breast surgery. There's a new Botox out there called Xeomin. We're going to be talking about Xeomin and, and Botox itself and Dysport in an upcoming show. And there's also new breast implants that have been FDA approved. A company called Cientra has a new line of breast implants. We'll be talking about that in comparison to the existing lines of implants. All of this coming your way in future shows here on New Reflections. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We hope you stayed informed and entertained today on New Reflections. Please join your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, again next Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You can also email the doctor at info at dr-rubenstein.com or visit his website at www.dr-rubenstein.com. And don't forget to join us next Saturday for New Reflections on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a beautiful weekend.